Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. And welcome to the Definitive Wrap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting this show. It's always fascinating to meet true academics with varied interests of the world at large. There is much going on today, and a great deal of it is that this has become a me type of generation, where people don't care what anyone needs as long as they're happy. When a brilliant young man chooses to write his dissertation about a politician who was quoted as saying, I would rather make another person happy than do anything else, that gives hope that society has not been lost to the all it's, it's all about me generation. Our guest today, Elliot Resnick, is the former chief editor of the Jewish Press, the current editor-in-chief of IVS450.com, and the host of a new podcast called The Elliot Resnick Show. Elliot Resnick also holds a PhD degree in Jewish history from Yeshiva University and is the author or editor of five books, including most recently Movers and Shakers, Volume 3, On American Glory, Jewish Destiny, Rare Integrity, and many more. Elliot, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You just got your PhD from Yeshiva University for a dissertation you wrote on Congressman Saul Bloom. I took the time to read it, and it's captivating. Thank you. He's not that well-known, yet you chose to to write about him. So who is Bloom, and why was he so much of your interest? Okay, so first of all, he was the most powerful Jew in Congress during the Holocaust years. He's responsible for saving the life of the Ger Rebbe. And I know that because when he passed away, the Ger Yeshiva in Yerushalayim sent an immemorium notice to the New York Times saying the Sfas Emes Yeshiva of, of Yerushalayim would like to thank Saul Bloom for saving the life of the Ger Rebbe and his family. He also introduced the Ferris wheel to the world. He was in charge of the entertainment section of the World Fair in Chicago in 1893. And that's when the, the Ferris wheel made its world debut. He's responsible for George Washington being on the quarter because he was in charge of the 200th birthday celebration of George Washington, the national celebration. Before then, Lady Liberty was on the quarter, and then George Washington became on the quarter. But anyways, he's perhaps most interesting, I think, to from Jews, besides for saving the Garrett Rebbe's life, because, because of him, we celebrate Shabbos on Saturday today. What do I mean? So in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there was a movement to reform the calendar. This was an international movement, the secular calendar. The argument was that the calendar is not rational, it's not scientific, it's not business friendly. Some months have 30 days, other months have 31 days, one month has 28 days. And also the year starts off on different days every year. So for example, this year, July 18th was Monday. Last year was Sunday. So if I'm a businessman and I want to compare sales July 18th this year to last year, you can't do it because this year it's Monday. Last year is a Sunday. Sunday sales are obviously not comparable to Monday sales. So both the scientific community and the business community wanted to reform the calendar. And the main plan that was being proposed 
was to make a 13-month calendar. Every month would be 28 days, exactly four weeks. Every month would start on a Sunday. Every year it would start on a Sunday. The only problem with this plan is that the Earth and the Sun do not cooperate. The Earth goes around the Sun every 365 days, and 365 is not divisible by seven. So the only way to make this calendar work is essentially to make an eight-day week at the end of the year, and that's what they wanted to do. So under this new calendar, December 28th would be Saturday. The next day would be nothing, literally nothing. It was going to be called blank day, and two days later, January 1st, would be Sunday. Now, as Jews, though, we couldn't operate under that type of calendar because for us, Shabbos is every seven days. So if this calendar were adopted, December 28th would be Saturday. The next day, the blank day for us would be Yom Rishon, the first day of a new week. And two days later, January 1st, Sunday would for us be Yom Sheni, the second day of the week. So essentially, if the calendar were adopted, the first year we, we would be celebrating Shabbos on Friday, the next year on Thursday, the next year on Tuesday, because in a leap year, there would be two blank days, etc., etc. So... Like I said, this was an internet, international movement. This was fought by the chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Joseph Hertz. But at a certain point, the movement thought that if America takes the, the lead, the rest of the world will follow. So they introduced a resolution in Congress saying that the American Congress wants to call a conference at which we'll either reform the calendar or at least we'll join such a conference. And it was probably going to pass because no one really had any real opposition to it. But rabbis found out about it. Presumably they told Bloom and Bloom fought tooth and nail against it in Congress. And he brought in different rabbis to, t to testify against it. Bernard Drachman, who translated of Hirsch's 19 letters into English, he testified. Rabbi Moshe Chaimson, who translated the Rambam into English, he testified. Some Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists testified. And because of that opposition, it was basically killed in committee. And both, at least one Jewish newspaper and Rabbi Hertz, the chief rabbi of England, gave Bloom credit. They said, if not for Saul Bloom's opposition in Congress, it's very possible that, that today we would be operating under this new calendar and Shabbos would be on a different day of the week every year. And it was hard enough to keep Shabbos in 1930. If Shabbos was going to be in the middle of the week, it would have been almost virtually impossible. So I found Saul Bloom interesting and I wound up writing about him. Right, right. Well. That's uh, that's definitely definitely fascinating and and captivating, and it's a story that's not very well known. And you know, thanks to you, now it is. Thank you, thank you, uh, Elliot. You are a celebrated author and editor. Um, who is the most interesting person you've interviewed? So I've been conducting interviews for sixteen years now. And during that time period, I've interviewed approximately 250 people from all walks of life. So people like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, Charles Krauthammer, Ben Shapiro, Sebastian Gorka, Ben Schenker, A.B. Rottenberg, Mrs. Libby Kahana, that's Mayor Kahana's wife. So all sorts of people. But the interviews I find most interesting fall into two categories. Number one, interviews with people whose ideas I either agree with or find fascinating or inspiring. And number two, interviews with people from whom I learned something new, something I did not know before. So I'll give you an example from the second category. A number of years ago, I, I interviewed Dan Raviv, who was a CBS News correspondent for 40 years. And he wrote a book called Spies Against Armageddon, which was about the Mossad and which was a bestseller in Israel. Mm -hmm. And in the course of the interview and doing research for the interview, I asked him, when did the Mossad and CIA start 
their working relationship because today they work very well together. When did that start? And he said it started in 1956. That was the year that Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, gave a secret speech to the Communist Party of the USSR in which he outlined Stalin's crimes. And that was a big deal at the time because Stalin's crimes were not well known and they were often not even acknowledged altogether. So the Western intelligence agencies wanted to get their, whole, their hands on this speech. They knew what the speech was about generally, but they did not know the details. But they were not able to. They were not successful. There was a, a Jew in Poland who had a girlfriend who worked at the Communist Party headquarters of Poland. He went to visit her one day. He saw a copy of the speech at the Polish Communist Party headquarters. He asked her if he could borrow it for a few hours. She must have liked him a lot because she said yes. <laughs> she was his he, girlfriend. So. <laughs> yeah. He took that speech, went to the Israeli embassy in Warsaw. The Israeli embassy in Warsaw shipped it back to Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, they verified that it was authentic, and they sent a copy to the CIA in Washington. And the CIA was basically shocked that where it had failed, the Mossad, which was only eight years old, had succeeded. So I found the story very interesting. Number one, it's a fascinating story. But number two, I think it also shows us that when we do the right thing, when the state of Israel does the right thing, Hashem will reward us. You, if you don't see the Yad Hashem in that story, I don't see, think you'll see it anywhere else because I think it's so clear. Yeah. Elliot, you started a new podcast recently. So please tell us what, what it's all about and uh, why, did, why did you decide to start it? So I want to create a sort of home for principled right-wing Jews. You know, nowadays we hear a lot about the value of compromising, of being moderate. And the truth is, in personal relations, that's very important. We're supposed to be mevater. We're supposed to be easygoing. We're supposed to ignore insults that are, are hurled our way. But when it comes to the Torah, it's not a mitzvah to be moderate. On the contrary, often we're supposed to be, quote-unquote, extremists, which is another way of saying being principled. Avram Avinu was an extremist. Nachshon ben Aminadav was an extremist. Pinchas was an extremist. Eliyahu Anavi was an extremist. The Maccabees were extremists. Virtually every great Torah leader in a time of crisis is an extremist. Take just two examples, someone like Rosh Hashanah or Fall Hirsch or the Lubavitcher Rebbe. These people were not gentle lambs. They were fierce lions who fought for Torah principles without compromise. So, you know, we hear a lot about centrism. People virtually worship centrism nowadays. But centrism and moderation is only good when the two extremes are wacky. So take raising children, for example. On one extreme is a parent who locks his child in the basement, whips him every single day, never smiles. The other extreme is a parent who lets his child do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Both extremes are wacky. The normal, moderate, centrist position is a normal parent who mixes ahava and ira, love with discipline. Okay, but take... Another issue, take belief in Hashem. On one extreme is believing in Hashem. The other extreme is not believing in Hashem. What's the centrist position? The centrist position is agnosticism. Maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't exist. But that's not the Torah position. That's not the position we're supposed to hold. We're extremists. We believe there's one Hashem, period, end of story. What's the moderate centrist position between food and poison? Have a little bit of food and a little bit of poison? No, you're going to die if you do that. I mean, Ayn Rand said years ago, you know, she was a brilliant person. She was um, not terribly moral, but she was brilliant. And she once said, I had the quote here a second ago. Let me see if I can find it again. I'm sorry. Oh, I can't find it. But basically, she said, whenever there's um, evil and good, only evil could triumph. And whenever you have a mixture of poison and food, 
only death really could triumph. So moderation is not good. It's often actually very bad when it comes to principles. So I wanted to give, have, have really a home for people who don't believe in compromise, who believe in being principled, and who are willing to buck societal trends. Even if everyone agrees, disagrees with them, they're willing to go against the herd. So for example, on my latest episode, I interviewed John Rosemond, who's a parenting expert. He's published 20, 20 books, 11 bestsellers. He has a column that's syndicated in 200 newspapers. And his parenting advice goes against virtually the, the parenting advice of virtually every other parenting expert in the country. So experts often will say to instill self-esteem in your children. He says, no, you should do the opposite. If you want to raise respectful uh, mention, you should do the opposite. People say to affirm your child's feelings. He says, no, a child's feelings are often erratic, chaotic, untethered from reality. You should teach and direct your child how to feel. Don't affirm his feelings. People say to give children choices. He says, no, you need to direct your children. And he says, often what I'm doing is not inventing anything new. He says, I'm just giving the advice that every parent took as self-evident until 50 years ago when the whole world turned upside down, starting in the late 1960s and 1970s. That's the era of the sexual revolution and of feminism and the rejection of religion. That's when a lot of these modern parenting theories became in vogue. And he's willing to go against the entire establishment. The uh, North Carolina psychological establishment tried to strip him of his license to, his, to practice psychology because of his traditional ideas. So these are the type of people that I like to feature, and I like to give chizuk to people who are willing to fight the trends. Right. Extremists. <laughs> well, we're, we're pretty extreme here on the, on the definitive rap as well. You know, what's right is right, and uh, we, don't, we don't negotiate. We, you know, we, we stick to our guns here, too. And I so think we need to, to give definitely a to guest on the right show. And, thank you. you know, thank you. I, I'm sure your, your new podcast will be very, very successful. Thank you. Mirza Hashem. Thank Elliot, you, so um, you were the former uh, chief editor of the Jewish press. Uh, why are you no longer there? Now, that's a good question. So um, essentially, the Jewish press decided that my political views were a potential financial liability to them. That's the short end of it. I, I don't want to speak badly about the Jewish press. I worked there for 15 years. Um, they've been friends. The owners have been friends with my family for 30 or 40 years, particularly my mother. The Jewish press has done much, much, much good over the years. They gave Rabbi Kahana a platform. They essentially helped make him who he was. For 25 years, he had a column to spread his views. Uh, in the 1990s, when the, virtually the entire Jewish establishment was gung-ho for land for peace, the Jewish press viciously fought, vehemently fought against it. The, the Jewish press has done a tremendous amount of good. Um, but essentially, at a certain point, um, my views, my activities were considered a possible potential liability to them. And um, Why a liability? Why liability? Because we live in a very crazy world nowadays. We live in a cancel culture world. And we live in a time where people no longer believe in free speech. When I say people, I mean the society no longer believes in free speech. Right. And I, I was involved in certain things, and the Jewish press was scared that if it became known that their editor was some crazy radical Trumpist, and that's the way the world looks at people like me, um, there would be problems with, um, with government. Because unfortunately, everything's connected to government nowadays. And um, that's the short end of it. <laughs> Right, right. How did you get your career started? I, I mean, you, you're fascinating. You know, at your young age, oh, you've, you. you've accomplished so much. 
where where does it come from? There's got to be a root to all this, you know, that that passion, that drive. Yes, yeah, so I think it comes from both my parents, to be honest. I know you interviewed my mother a few yes. months ago. My mother's a Balchuva. She's a former NBC news producer, and she became from in 1979. She turned her entire life around um, because she discovered the truth. She discovered Hashem is true. So she went from being a secular leftist to being a religious rightist. And she is an international speaker now. She speaks about her story all the time. So she has much passion. She is a truth seeker. But my father also was very much a truth seeker as well. He grew up from, but also he's extremely well-educated, but not at all intimidated by any of these modern secular fads. Um, he thought most of the modern world was going haywire. Um, he thought we live... Um, you know, my father loved philosophy also. He thought we lived, besides for everything else, being badly from a religious perspective, also from a philosophical perspective, from a progress perspective. He used to like quoting Goethe, who once said that every age of progress is an objective age, and every age of regress is an, a subjective age. So if you believe in objective truth, so you're striving for something higher. You're building buildings for the glory of God. And that's why older music and older buildings are more majestic. But if there's no truth, if everything's subjective, then, you know, I once read it in a book by Douglas Murray called The Strange, Strange Death of Europe. And he writes that artists used to draw things to raise human beings up to something higher than themselves. He said, nowadays, the, the, art, the attitude of artists is, let me get down in the mud with you. So there's no objective truth anymore. There's nothing to strive towards. It's all about my feelings, my internal, yeah, inner world. The meat generation. Yeah. Right, the meat generation. That's, that's also the basis of psychology. You don't discuss what's right and wrong. You don't discuss what I should do. You discuss how I am feeling. There's a worship of the self. My father couldn't stand that from a philosophical perspective. And, and of course, it, it ties into religion because all of religion, all of Judaism is doing what Hashem wants, not what, what we want. It's overcoming our feelings. It's waking up in the morning and wanting to go back to sleep, but knowing that Hashem wants me to wake up for Shachos if you're a man. And Shulchan Aruch starts off, wake up like a lion. So, I mean, all of Judaism is overcoming the self. Anyway, so my father was very passionate about that. Both my parents were very passionate about following truth. And I guess it's in my genes, Baruch Hashem. I got that from them. And whenever we get a good gene, it's our job to live up to it. So I guess I'm trying to live up to it. Uh, speaking of doing for others and that being part of the meat generation, um, you were also the editor of a book of Divrei Torah by Rabbi Meir Kahana and his son, Rabbi Benjamin Kahana. What inspired you to put out this book? So we were talking about principled Jews before. So there's almost no one more principled than Rabbi Meir Kahana and his son. So I put the book out because there are many people who are not interested in reading two or 300 page books, but they are very interested in reading two or three page Devar Torahs. So publishing this book was my way of spreading their ideas in a very easy and digestible fashion. But I also think the book is valuable because it contains ideas and Torah sources that are not so widely known and which I think we should know, especially when we're debating Israeli type issues. Can so you for share example, a little bit about what you wrote? So I'll, I'll give one example, the whole topic of innocent civilians. So Israel is constantly accused of, being, of killing innocent civilians. And the sad truth is that Israel actually bent over backwards not to. The person who wrote, wrote the code of ethics for the IDF has publicly bragged that my code of ethics puts Israeli soldiers' lives in danger so that we don't harm so-called innocent Palestinian Civilians. Now, I don't think there's a less innocent population in the history of the world. Um, 
World War II, if you dropped an American in the, in the middle of Berlin or the middle of Tokyo, he would not be lynched because the average German, the average Japanese did not hate Americans. They were at war, but they didn't hate Americans per se as civilians. If you drop a from Jew in the middle of Ramallah, he will be lynched. Yeah. Now, lynchings are not committed by soldiers. They're committed by regular, Civilians. ordinary people. Yeah. So I don't think there's a less innocent population in the history of the world than the Palestinian Arab population. But leaving that aside for a second, from the moral perspective, um, I think and wars are fought between nations. And this is backed up in Torah sources all the time. Hashem constantly treats the Jews and other nations as nations, as collectives. The Mitzrayim were punished as a nation. The Makos affected them as a nation. If you have a plague of Arbev, locusts, locusts are attacking every field, not just the Mitzrayim who are not nice to us. And really the answer is because in war, there's the home front and there's the front lines. There are the people shooting the guns and the people sewing the uniforms of the soldiers, growing the food, giving the soldiers emotional support. But anyways, a very important Torah source, which is brought down by Rabbi Binyamin Kahana, is the Maharalmi Prague on the story of Levi and Shimon. Why were Levi and Shimon allowed to kill all the people, all the men of Shechem? So the Rambam gives a very famous answer, which is that all non-Jews are obligated to keep the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. One of the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach is to have courts of justice. So for our audience that doesn't, under, doesn't know what the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach are, can you please... Elaborate yeah, a little I, bit on that. I apologize. So the no, seven that's Noahide, okay. <laughs> yeah, we have a so, wide audience. So uh, I apologize. Yeah. Okay, no, you're right. I apologize. So the that's seven okay. Noahide laws, and one of the seven Noahide laws is to have courts of justice. And so the the Rambam Maimonides says that the people of Shechem should have brought their leader to trial for kidnapping Dina because they did not. Therefore, they were all guilty and they were liable to the death penalty. But the Maharalmi Prague, who lived around 500 years ago, he doesn't like this answer because he says, how are the people going to bring their own leader to trial? They were scared of him. So Maharal gives his, his own answer. He says, lo kashimidi. It's not a question at all. He says, why? He says, essentially, because this was a war between two nations. There was the Jewish nation, the family of Yaakov, and there was the city of Shechem, which was another nation. And in wars, wars are fought between collectives. And he says that's the same story with other wars, when God tells the Jewish people to fight against the Midianim, the Midianites. The, the Maharal says, you know, it's not the case that every single Midianite sinned. Not every single Midianite did sin. I, I even have the original source here. He says, even though many the Midianites didn't do anything wrong, it makes no difference. Since they were part of the same nation, that did bad to the Jewish people, you're allowed to fight a war against them. And so is the case with all wars. And I think it's a very important Torah source for those of us who are thinking about these issues sometimes, to realize that the Torah constantly treats nations as collectives. We're rewarded and punished as collectives. And when you fight a war, you have to fight it as a collective. And they're collectively guilty. Maybe not individually guilty, but they are collectively guilty. You're definitely a mover and a shaker. And uh, one of the books you recently wrote is about movers and shakers. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so I put out three volumes of Movers and Shakers containing now 181 interviews. My last volume, each volume had 60 interviews. My last volume, I just couldn't narrow it down and get rid of the 61st, so I published 61 interviews. Okay, um, I'll just give you one example of an interview which I found very interesting. I interviewed a lady named Nina Teichholz, who is a science journalist. She spent nine years researching the 
thesis that fat is bad for you. And she wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. I found this book fascinating, not only because of her conclusion, which is that fat is not bad for you. Um, and when I published it in the Jewish press, I published it under the headline, Is it possible that schmaltz is actually not bad for you? Um, when did so you publish only, that article? In the Jewish press, maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago, Max. But I just published it in the, in the book, which just came out maybe a half a year ago. Right. And I found it fascinating, not just because of her con- conclusion. And by the way, she claims that her conclusion is backed up now by the government. She said, if you look at the official government guidelines, as of five or 10 years ago, they dropped the recommendation to have a low-fat diet, and they dropped the recommendation to have a low-cholesterol diet. She said they, they did this very quietly. They did not announce it because they would have to essentially be admitting that they were wrong for 50 years. But in, in any event, I found the book very poignant because she describes how we came to this conclusion that fat is bad for you. And I think that this will ring so much more truer now that we live through COVID. She said in the, in the mid-1900s, there was a, a rise in heart disease in America. And a few doctors in very powerful positions decided that in, the culprit must be fat. Now, this author thinks it's probably sugar, but they decided at the time that it's probably fat. They also decided we can't wait five or 10 years till the studies prove us right. We immediately have to tell the American people that fat is bad for you. And in due time, the science will prove that we're correct. Well, the science actually never proved that they were correct, despite doing study after study. But by that point, it was too late. These people had very big egos. They already recommended that that fat is bad for you. They held powerful positions. Anyone who disagreed with them all of a sudden was not getting his articles published in in journals. All of a sudden was not being invited to major conferences. All of a sudden, his research was not not being funded by the government. And like I said, this rings so true now with, let's say, global warming or vaccines. It's the same exact story. There's no consensus here. It's people in very powerful positions. And if you disagree with them, your career might be over. That's right. You're not going to be invited to the conferences. You're not going to get your grant money. And this is what happened with fat. There were people in very powerful positions. And if you disagreed with them, it didn't pay to disagree with them. Your career was over. Your voice wasn't heard. Now, many of us think, and we like to think of science as as a very dispassionate, disinterested endeavor. And it's supposed to be that way. But often it's not. I interviewed another person years ago who wrote a book about science. He's a scientist. And he said he, he does research on proteins. He said an individual protein is so super duper complicated, it's impossible for a protein, let alone a plant, an animal, or a human, it's impossible for a protein to develop accidentally. He doesn't have a problem with evolution, but it had to have been a guided evolution. He said 15 billion years is nowhere near enough time. You would need trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years even to have a protein develop accidentally. But he said when he entered the scientific field, he also thought scientists, scientists were dispassionate. They only wanted, wanted the truth. He said he discovered scientists are like us. Just like we have egos, they have egos. Just like it's difficult for me or you to admit that we're wrong, it's difficult for scientists to admit that they're wrong. And unfortunately, at a certain point, they get positions of power. And the careful scientists, they don't get quoted in newspapers. If you say a vaccine may save lives or remdesivir may save lives, that doesn't make for a good headline in a newspaper. If you say remdesivir will save millions of lives or a vaccine for sure will save millions of lives, that's what a journalist wants for his newspaper headline. So the really careful scientists, they don't get quoted in newspapers. It's the arrogant, ambitious scientists 
who get quoted in newspapers. And in the process, science is very corrupted. So when I interviewed this lady, Nidna Teicholt, about fat, I found it a fascinating book, not just for her conclusion, but also the backstory of how science, unfortunately, really works behind the scenes. We have about a minute left. Um, you also wrote about Jewish destiny. Um, very briefly, tell us about that. And what is your view about the Jewish destiny based on the way things are today? I really think we need to be principled and not compromise. Hashem gave us the land. The land is ours, period. People say the Israeli conflict, Arab conflict is very complicated. No, it's actually very, very simple. The land belongs to us. God gave it to us, period. If you don't like it, you can fly a kite. That's the end of the story, and we'll be fine. We were fine in 1948 when we were a tiny, weak country. Hashem looked after us. Today, we're a superpower. What are we scared of? We'll be fine. And I always say, worst comes to worst, we'll be like Iran or North Korea. We'll be isolated. You know what? We'll be isolated, we'll, but we'll be a proud Jew in which a Jew could walk out at night without being murdered. I'd rather be a third-world proud country than be a first-world scared country. But it won't even come to that. We're a very powerful country. America needs us just like we need, the, we need them. You, you know, international politics is a game, but at the end of the day, if we do what Hashem wants, Hashem will help us. We'll be fine. For all the single ladies out there, Elliot is also an eligible bachelor. I, I couldn't help myself. I, I did have to put that out there in the universe, you know? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Elliot, thank you for being here today. Um, you're incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. But thank you. And you're doing a tremendous amount of good work also. So with Shadokim and with your podcast and with other things you do. So I koch to you as well. Thank you. Thank you to Venus and to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Rap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.